What's up, everybody? Good to see you. Um, I see a lot of new faces tonight. So if you don't know me, my name is Micah. Uh, I've been here with the college ministry for four years, been with Mountain View a lot longer than that, and I was at CSU even before then. Um, so whatever you want to talk about, I want to talk about it with you. Uh, come find me after this, and I'd love to say hi. Um, we are in part two of our Spiritual Warfare Sermon Series. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 4 primarily tonight, so you can turn there, but it'll be a few minutes before we get there. Um, right now, I want to talk about something I learned in one of my psychology classes, all right? It was called the foot-in-the-door phenomenon. Have you heard of this? I don't know why it's called a phenomenon, because it seems pretty simple to me. But basically what it means is if you want somebody to do something big for you, you have to start small. You have to start with some smaller ask and gradually grow your way into a bigger and bigger ask before they're going to say yes to that. And you've probably heard this. You probably know about it. I mean, it's the same thing with like, uh, a company asking for you to give your email address to them. Like, you might not be ready to buy something right away, but like, yeah, sure, like, I'll throw my email on there and I'll get some emails. And then maybe you start reading some blogs. Maybe then you start, like, retweeting some blogs. And then before you know it, you've bought, like, three Billabong shirts and a hoodie and you're prescribed to Red Bull TV to watch the surfing comps, right? And this happens in your life, too. You know it. What about, like, have you ever gone on a first date or, like, maybe your friends have gone on a first date and they come back and they're like, I'm going to marry her. And you have to be like, maybe. They're like, no, I'm serious. I'm going to propose next date. And you're like, you can't. No, no, you can't. Like, that's a crazy person move. You can't start with such big an ask. You're going to scare her away. You got to woo her. You got to go a lot slower than that. But here's my best example, all right? A lot of you know this about me. I really love motorcycles. Uh, both my brothers ride, my dad rides, and I never did. I never thought I could afford one, and I just never really pulled the trigger on it. I also really love video games, which a lot of you know. Uh, one of you, oh, he's not here, so I'm going to name him, Andrew, he works for the middle school ministry. He came up to me last year, and he was like, man, I got to tell you, you were such an inspiration to me. I was like, really? Tell me more. And he was like, dude, he was just like, I'm just so inspired because... You're married, and you still play video games. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> but it applies. So two years ago, I was thinking about buying a motorcycle. My truck was on the way out. I knew I needed a new vehicle. And at the time, I was playing this video game. Days gone. Yeah. You ride around on a motorcycle and kill zombies. There's nothing cooler. The best part was my wife, Julie, loved this game. Because it's also a love story about like a big bad biker trying to find his wife in the zombie apocalypse. And she loved that part of it, and I kind of loved that part of it, but I really like the motorcycles and the killing zombies part of it. But I started thinking, I was like, hmm, foot in the door, like this might be my way to get a motorcycle. So we played through this game together. And then we started watching this like motorcycle TV show. And then I started showing her pictures of like, hey, what do you think of this leather jacket? And I think you'd look good in this helmet. And she'd be like, I would look good in that helmet. And then we started looking at different motorcycle types. And I'd be like, hey, which one of these like motorcycle types do you think are your favorite? And before you know it, bam, I'm buying a Harley. From my bigger, scarier, more intimidating brother, uh, don't be confused or uh, put off by that Rick and Morty t-shirt. He's an animal. <laughs> but here's the thing. I never would have gotten straight to the Harley, all right? I had to work my way there. 
And it's not like some psychologist back in the day came up with this foot in the door phenomenon and was like, mm, I got a great idea and I'm going to market it. Like, this is how human nature is. This is how we work. And you see this all through the Bible as well. If you're a part of the Sunday services here, you've been tracking along with Abraham's story. I think one of the biggest lessons we need to learn from Abraham is what it looks like to follow God for 50 or 60 years. In a couple of weeks, we're going to get to the story of God telling, Isaac, or telling Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, and Abraham willingly is going to do it. And we find out later in Hebrews 11, it's because Abraham had so much confidence in God, built up by 50 or 60 years of following him, that he was okay sacrificing his son because he knew without a shadow of doubt that God had power over life and death and would simply resurrect his son. That's not the kind of ask that Abraham would have believed or been okay with when he first started following God. But over time, he gradually grew in understanding of him, grew in faith in him. But everything that God does, the devil twists and uses to corrupt us and attack us and oppress us. So the same way that we might grow in faith in bigger steps of faith in God, Satan could use that to also twist it and tempt us into bigger and bigger acts of sin, things that we might not have even believed we were capable of. And that's what tonight's about. Tonight's about how Satan and his demons work in your life. So let me start here. Last week we started with this verse, Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. What Paul is telling you is that the enemy in your life, whether you see them or believe in them or not, are evil, malicious, invisible spirits that want nothing more than to torture you and attack you and oppress you and blind you to the love and the mercy and the forgiveness and salvation that God holds out to you. And we started talking about the war, the war between Satan and the church. If you remember, we were in Revelation 12, and it says this, Then the dragon, Satan, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So this is the war we're talking about this month, the war between Satan and his demons and the church, Christians, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So there's a lot we could talk about here, but tonight we're simply hitting a lot of foundations. And if you come from a background that has maybe some experience or some terminology or some phrases that you don't understand, again, I'm asking you, fill out those uh, QR forms for the Q&A, and we're going to get to a lot of that. But tonight is really foundational. How do demons gain influence over you? So there's a lot of ways the Bible is going to describe demonic influence. It's going to say maybe somebody has a demon, or you're with a demon, or you're demon-possessed. We can look at some of those verses here. Acts 8, 7 says, For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And Mark 1, 23, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. In Matthew 8, 16, And when Jesus came, two demon-possessed men met him. And there's a lot of verses that talk this way. However, in Greek, the original language of the Bible, what you're going to hear is demonized. Somebody was demonized. So that's the question. How are we supposed to think about this? And is there a difference between having a demon or being with a demon or being demon-possessed or being demonized? 
And before we get into any of that, I want to shy away from that word possession. It's probably not the best interpretation. And I know we have so much like emotion and fear and like Hollywood attached to that word. And I don't want you to think about this in a way that like the half-truths or the straight-up lies that movies and TV shows might have for you, all right? Possession is probably not the best interpretation. So the simplest way we can talk about this is to be demonized means to, in one way or another, be influenced, controlled, or indwelt by a demon. To be demonized is to be influenced, controlled, or indwelt by a demon. So let me explain that. There's a lot of extreme cases of demonized men and women in the Bible. And a lot of stories that maybe you've heard or you've experienced yourself. Jesus and Peter and Paul and the other apostles over and over again encountered men and women who took on the personality of a demon or spoke with a demon's voice. Who have supernatural strength or people that had physical ailments or diseases or illnesses caused by demons. And there's zero reason to believe that demons don't have that same influence and control on people today. But we also know that demonic warfare can be a lot more subtle and a lot more extreme, less extreme than that. So I might know where your mind might go hearing all that. Am I indwelt? Am my friends indwelt? Is there such a thing as possession? And yeah, maybe there is, but... I want you to hear this from me as your preacher and your shepherd. And a lot of pastors and a lot of preachers and a lot of theologians might disagree with me or might think that uh, I'm going a little too oversimplistic about this. And like I said last week, I am no expert at all of this. I'm just a guy who's prayed about and read about and sought counsel maybe a little bit more than you. But the best thing I could say here is I'm just not sure the location of a demon when it comes to your environment is the most important thing to talk about here. I read this old book this month trying to think through all this, and I loved what this author had to say. He said, whether a demon buffets me from a mile away, the corner of the room, sitting on my shoulder, whispering in my ear, or clinging to my corruptible flesh, the result is the same. So I don't want you to be consumed with fears or ideas or paranoia of where demons might be. It's enough to know they're there and they have the opportunity to influence and torment and attack and oppress you. And so here's how. How they influence you. How we allow demons to get a grip on our life. And there's two ways I think we can talk about this. Voluntary and involuntary influence. And this isn't all-inclusive, this isn't everything that Satan has in his toolbox, but there are ways that we voluntarily give Satan influence in our life, and there are ways that God sovereignly allows him to influence our lives, even when we've done everything correctly. So let me start with this involuntary influence, because I think it'll be short. You can do everything right. You can faithfully follow Jesus. You can believe the gospel. Every single day you can preach that you were saved by faith alone. Faith in Jesus. And you can read the Bible and you can do your very best to be obedient and to do what God would have for you. And you could still be attacked and oppressed and tempted by Satan and his demons. You can read the book of Job if you have trouble understanding that. Job was attacked directly by Satan because he was righteous, because he was the most righteous. And God allowed Satan a ton of control in Job's life for a season and a period of his life. 
And you can read about a woman in Luke 13 who was physically disabled for 18 years by a demon. And God allowed that so that God would be glorified when Jesus healed her. So there's such a thing as involuntary influence, involuntary temptation and attack. But Satan and his demons primarily have influence in your life when you voluntarily and willingly give them influence in two ways. And the first is this, and this is the scariest one. Voluntarily and willingly directly engaging with demons. So I'm talking about Satanism and occultism and witchcraft and Ouija boards and everything connected to that. And I want you to hear me on this. Don't play around with this. Don't willingly step into engagement with demonia. There's almost, well, I don't want to say there's nothing that the Bible takes more seriously, but this is a serious topic in the Bible. Let me read you this from Deuteronomy, the laws that God gave to the nation of Israel. And he said, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. I can't emphasize this enough. Do not play around and engage with demonia. You see, Acts 19, Paul goes to the city, Ephesus, and he starts preaching the gospel and people come to faith. And the very first thing they do is burn all of their witchcraft books. Because there's a demonic power here that does exist and it's not for us to even toy with. It's that serious. And so before we move on, if, if this is a past, this is part of your past or part of your present, when we step aside to worship and to pray tonight, I'd really love for you to come back and talk to me about this. But here's where we're going to park for the rest of the night. The second voluntary way that we give demons influence in our life is when we have willful, unrepentant, unresolved sin in our lives. To put it another way, when we persistently refuse to do what God tells us to do through his words in the Bible. Now, Ephesians 4. You can turn there. Ephesians 4, let me catch you up. Paul is preaching to uh, this church in Ephesus, and he's talking to them about what it is to be a Christian. You have given your life to Christ. You believe in his life, death, and resurrection for your salvation. You were given a whole new life. You were given the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. And now he's telling them how to live in that truth. And I'm going to start reading in verse 17. And it's not on the screen, so you can follow along or you can just listen to me. And Paul says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as non-believers do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard of him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
So let me teach you this and let me remind you of this. When you give your life to Jesus, when you believe in the gospel, the story that he saves you through faith and faith alone, you are given a whole new identity. The old you has passed away. You have new life, a new creation, the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And part of that means that you have all new desires, all new affections, an ability and a desire to follow Christ in obedience. But that means we have to put off our sinful ways. We have to fight and kill sin. And so here's where we're going to center in tonight. Verse 26. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So zero in here. Verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. Notice here the devil isn't credited with producing anger in your life. That's all you. No one's allowed to say that the devil made me do it. You are responsible for your sin. But here's what Paul's warning you to do. Don't let the sun go down on your sin. Don't let sin in your life fester and stew and stick around without repenting and without dealing with it. Because when you do, you give the devil an opportunity. And you can substitute other words in here for anger. You can substitute bitterness and resentment and covetousness and jealousy or greed Sexual immorality, slander and gossip, all these sins Paul's telling you to kill and put to death and not let lie in your life. And the opportunities you give the devil and his demons are when you willfully and persistently and rebelliously refuse to deal with your sin. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, the ESV says opportunity, give no opportunity to the devil. There's a lot of different ways you could translate that. Your Bible might say it differently. It might say opportunity. It might say foothold. It might say inhabitable space or a grip. You give the devil a grip on your life when you willingly choose not to repent, when you continually choose sin over and over again and allow unresolved, unrepentant sin in your life, when you get lazy or apathetic about doing everything and anything to kill sin in your life. So when you continually choose anger over forgiveness, you're giving him an opportunity. When you choose resentment and bitterness with people in your past, you're giving him an opportunity. When you consistently turn to pornography instead of confessing and repenting and taking every action to kill it, that's a grip. And demons aren't the cause of your sin. You are, but you give them an opportunity, and you allow them to tempt you into greater and greater sins in your life. The devil's primary tactic in spiritual warfare is to tempt you into greater and greater sinful actions and beliefs. And when you give him a grip, when you choose your sin over and over again, what once didn't seem tempting in the slightest is going to start looking sweeter and sweeter. It's that foot in the door. Give him a grip and he's going to coax you into ruining your life just one small step after another. Demonic influence in your life doesn't have to look supernatural and it doesn't have to look fantastical to be true. So can you see maybe where Satan has a foot in the door in your life and you've given him some opportunity to continually tempt you, continually grow and amplify and intensify his influence in your life? Because, you know, we can't control our sin. It never stops with one sinful drink. It never stops with one, sin, one, 
drink, one website. It's not just one broken, unresolved relationship that you refuse to forgive. It always is going to spiral. Left alone, less unconfessed and undealt with, it's going to grow. One day you say yes to a video game about motorcycles, and the next thing you know, there's a Harley in your garage. And one day you avoid the hard conversation with a friend because you refuse to forgive them. And the next thing you know, you're on your fourth friend group with nothing but broken relationships behind you. One day you're too prideful, you're too fearful or stuck in porn to confess. Next thing you know, you're 10 years into an addiction with nothing but shame and guilt in your life and no idea how you got there. And you don't have to look far, even in this church, to see that right in front of you. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk about a few common opportunities, a few common grips that I see Satan have in college students' life. And then we'll talk about the solution. Because there is a solution here. Remember last week, there's a clear victor in this war. Satan has been utterly defeated. Jesus won the minute he rose from the dead, the minute he was resurrected. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to fight. We know victory is certain, but there's fighting in our life, and there's grips that Satan can have in our life. So I'm just going to breeze through some of them, because I bet if I asked you, what are some opportunities or what are some common temptations and grips in college students' life, you'd probably name a couple of them. You know where pornography takes you. You know where sinful abuse of alcohol takes you. You know where dating somebody who isn't a Christian because they're a good person takes you. So let me name a couple opportunities, a couple of grips that maybe seem a little more insidious or a little bit harder to spot. And the first one is this, unresolved unforgiveness from someone in your past. I can almost guarantee that if you haven't opened up your life and talked through it completely with another person who is walking you through forgiving the people in your life, there's an opportunity here to be influenced. There could be a parent, could be an abuser, could be an ex-friend or an ex-boyfriend or a teacher or a coach, somebody who said something or did something that you just can't shake. And maybe it's not anger, maybe it's shame, maybe it's guilt. Maybe the devil has taken an unresolved instance in your life, a foothold, and amplified and intensified the shame so much that you can't even think about your past in any way except feeling shame. It's no longer that maybe you made a mistake, but you are a mistake. You know, I got to tell you, I've been doing this for six or seven years in one way or in another. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with students who can quote word for word what a teacher or a parent or an ex-friend or an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend has said to them that has utterly derailed their life. And you're not responsible for the sinful actions of another person, but you are responsible for your unforgiveness and your bitterness. Or maybe you're the person on the other side of that. You're the person who said something or did something that hurt somebody. And Satan has taken a grip and just crippled your life in that way. Either way, either side of that spectrum that you're on, it's time to deal with it. It's time to talk. It's time to confess. It's time to repent and understand God's forgiveness and compassion and mercy in your life. Don't let unresolved anger or unforgiveness or bitterness stew in your past. So that's the first one. And here's another one. 
greed. So do you know Jesus talks about greed more than any other sin except pride? And there's a reason for that. Uh, We're all greedy with our time and with our talents and with our treasure. And if you've heard those three words before, it's because they're like the big buzzwords in church planting and discipleship right now. Like give up your time and your talent and your treasures for Jesus, for the kingdom of God. And the reason that they're big buzzwords is because we're super greedy about all of those things. We're greedy about our money. We're greedy about our time. We're greedy about our gifts and what God has given us. Seniors, I think this is especially important for you. So next semester, my primary goal is to spend a lot of time with you seniors to help you think about and consider what transitioning out of college ministry and into the workforce and into other cities and into other ministries is going to look like. And part of those things, one of the things we're going to talk about is the three things that are guaranteed to ruin your life after you leave college. And I'll give you one of those now. You're going to get greedy with your money and it's going to leave you nothing but joylessness. So take a hard look at your life now. Does the devil have a foothold, have a grip in your life through greed, through your wallet? Jesus says this so simply and so profoundly. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 21. There's almost a one-for-one correlation here. If you want to know where your affections and your desires and your heart and your love is, look to where your money goes. Are there seemingly small footholds and grips of greed in your life now that are going to lead to greater and greater temptations later? And I know probably very few of you have a lot of money in your bank account right now, but greed has nothing to do with what's in your bank account. It has to do with what's in your heart. I mean, in fact, statistically, the more money you make, the less percentage you give away. And that's What can start as a small foothold of greedy tendencies now can skyrocket into sickening greed and selfishness later. Consider if there's a grip to resolve now. And that's just as true with your time as it is with your treasure, as it is with your money. Are you generous and selfless and outward facing towards others with your time? Because footholds and grips of selfishness now aren't going to go anywhere. You leave them to fester, and they're going to grow and grow. And 10 years from now, you won't even recognize where you might be. So now here's the good news. If all of that sounds impossible to kill every foothold and grip in your life, uh, it's because it is for you on your own. Attempting to kill every instance of pride or anger or lust or greed or selfishness in your life, that's a seemingly impossible and monumental task. And thank God we follow a God who's in the business of miracles and impossibilities. Satan has power, sure. Demons have power, yes. But nothing compared to the power of Jesus. Jesus utterly defeated Satan and demons and death and evil the minute he rose from the grave. And Romans 8.11 says that the same power that rose Jesus from from the dead lives inside of you if you believe that. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let me put it another way. Luke 10, 19 says this. Jesus is speaking not to his apostles, but to just simply his followers. 
And he says, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. You, Christian, have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have more power that God is using through you than any power in this world. And you won't meaningfully and powerfully engage in spiritual warfare until you truly get that he who is inside of you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, the devil. And you should be rightfully scared of the influence that demons might have in the world, might have in your campus, might have in your life. But you shouldn't be terrified. There's nothing in this universe that should terrify you except God's wrath against sin. And if you believe in his son for your salvation, then that wrath doesn't apply to you anymore. Be rightfully fear of the level of control God allows demons to have, but don't be terrified. Demons only have the influence that God allows in their life. And there's nothing they can do that can influence your salvation. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says this. Paul says, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's what to do. Here's what to do when you identify grips that Satan has in your life. 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him firm in faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Humble yourselves. Cast your anxieties on him. Be sober-minded, be watchful, and resist him firm in faith. Because you just heard what happens when you don't. You just heard what happens when you don't humble yourself, when you don't cast your anxieties on him, when you're not sober-minded, and when you don't resist him in faith. fighting demonic influence, breaking Satan's grips on our lives, it's maybe a lot easier and a lot simpler than we think. It's obedience and it's prayer. It's not incantations and chants that we have to get right and it's not magic formulas. It's taking the steps that Jesus has given you to remember and rely upon his power for salvation and his power through you to kill sin in the Holy Spirit. I was reading this book by um, this author, Sam Storm, and he had a really good illustration here for what it is to uh, fight demons in our life. And he kind of compared it to like maybe trying to be hit by a car or the fear that we might have of being hit by a car. And you might get hit by a car, but there's a lot of things you can do to protect yourself. You can look both ways before you cross the street, and you can use the sidewalks, and you can use the crosswalks. And even if a car comes at you, you can just hop in a building for protection. God has given you so many steps to protect yourself, to stay obedient, to pray, to rely on him. And even if a demon comes at you, you can simply retreat to Jesus, retreat to your refuge and your fortress and your strength. 
One final story, all right? Uh, I just started at a jujitsu club like a month ago, and I am horrible. And I'm serious about that. Jiu-jitsu is like an hour long, and I've never actually made it through the whole hour. The last 10 minutes, I'm always just sitting on the mat trying to not throw up or, even worse, not pass out. And the other day, like, I made this friend, Muhammad, and he saw me just sitting there, and he was like, yeah, man. He's like, I've thrown up twice. I passed out twice. He was like, actually, if I win one fight a month, I feel really good about myself. And I was like, cool, man. Like, you're the reason I'm like this. So, like, good on you. <laughs> But this last Friday, I went to practice, and it was a really, really small practice. It was me and two other white belts, so three beginners, and then a black belt who's a master, and a brown belt who's like basically a master. So I spent the entire hour just rolling around and fighting with this black belt, and he kept teaching me different grips, how to grab somebody on the shirt, how to grab them on the wrist or the leg, and what he said really stuck to me as I was praying through all this. He said, Dude, you can be terrible at this. You can be horrible at jujitsu, but if you have good grips, you're going to terrify people. If you can get a hold of somebody and they feel like they can't shake you, no matter how bad you are at jujitsu, you're going to terrify them. College, Satan and demons aren't as scary as you think they are, they just have good grips. Break the grips they have in your life, and you're going to realize how much greater and stronger the power of Jesus in your life is than any influence, any control, any harassment they could have in your life. So here's what we're going to do. Just like last week, when I pray, we're going to spread out a little bit because I want to give you an opportunity to really reflect, really consider, and really talk about what we talked about tonight. If you've identified or you consider grips or opportunities in your life, if you feel like there's unresolved anger or shame or guilt in your life, I want you to talk about it. So in fact, I'd be totally okay if nobody in here was singing except Nick. If everybody was talking together and confessing and opening up about the struggles and the grips and the opportunities in their life, that's the win tonight. And there's going to be a few of us in the back. Matt, you know, one of our pastors and his wife, Sarah, are going to be in the back. Adam will be in the back, as well as myself and my wife. If there's something that you want to talk about and you don't know who to talk about with, come and talk to us. There's nothing I'd rather do than pray for you tonight. And there might be a lot more steps to take. If anger and bitterness or jealousy or greed are deep-rooted in your life, there might be a lot of steps and a lot of prayer and a lot of conversations to come, but tonight is simply about 1 Peter 5. It's about humbling yourself before God. It's about casting your anxieties on him, confessing your sins to one another, and opening the door to understand the power that God desires in your life for forgiveness and freedom and healing. So let's pray, and as we stand up, take a few steps out. And if you want to step straight to the back now, that's great. If you want to turn to the person you came with and start talking and praying, I'd love that too. But for now, let's pray and let's worship. Jesus, we love you. And we trust you. We trust what you have to say about uh, the Holy Spirit inside of us and the love that you have for us, the compassion you have for us, for the freedom and the joy and the peace that you desire for us to see in our lives. And Jesus, we just trust you as more powerful and more caring, as sovereign over this whole world, that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so, Father, I pray tonight for boldness 
to speak, boldness to share about difficulties in our life, maybe difficulties that we've never talked about or we never thought we would talk about. And Jesus, would you just break the powers of sin and evil and demonia that might be controlling or influencing even our lives here? And I'm just so confident that you can do that, Jesus. I'm so confident that you desire to do that. And would you use all of us here praying for each other, confessing to another, pointing each other to the gospel that you, Jesus, have lived and died and was resurrected as a substitute for us. And we praise you and worship you for that. And I just ask that you do great things in hearts and minds and in our community tonight. Trust you with that. Love you. Amen.